Hello there, and welcome to Sarah's Bookshelf. That's me, Sarah, and I am so excited to have you here with me. This is a podcast where I share my love of literature and storytelling with you, and together we get to read some of the world's best stories. So let's get started. Today, we are continuing the novel Around the World in 80 Days, written by Jules Verne. It was published in 1872 and is one of Verne's best-known works. If you haven't listened to the last episodes of this story, I recommend you start with those. Just a quick disclaimer before I begin. Lots of the names in this episode are unfamiliar to me and can be quite hard to pronounce. I have done my best to find the correct pronunciations, but I know that it is far from perfect. So, I'd like to apologize in advance for any names that I might butcher. If anyone listening knows how to pronounce some of the names better than I do, I'd love to hear from you and be able to correct myself. There's an email in the show notes where you can contact me. Now, let's dive into the story. Chapter 10, in which Passepartout is only too glad to get off with the loss of his shoes. Everybody knows that the great reversed triangle of land, with its base in the north and its apex in the south, which is called India, embraces 1,400,000 square miles upon which is spread unequally a population of 180 millions of souls. The British crown exercises a real and despotic dominion over the larger portion of this vast country, and has a governor-general stationed at Calcutta, governors at Madras, Bombay, and in Bengal, and a lieutenant-governor at Agra. But British India, properly so-called, only embraces 700,000 square miles, and a population of 100 to 110 millions of inhabitants. A considerable portion of India is still free from British authority, and there are certain ferocious rajas in the interior who are absolutely independent. The celebrated East India Company was all-powerful from 1756, when the English first gained a foothold on the spot where now stands the city of Madras, down to the time of the Great Sepoy Insurrection. It gradually annexed province after province, purchasing them of the native chiefs, whom it seldom paid, and appointed the governor-general and his subordinates, civil and military. But the East India Company has now passed away, leaving the British possessions in India directly under the control of the crown. The aspect of the country, as well as the manners and distinctions of race, is daily changing. Formerly, one was obliged to travel in India by the old cumbrous methods of going on foot or on horseback. In planquins or unwieldy coaches... Now, fast steamboats ply on the Indus and the Ganges, and a great railway, with branch lines joining the main line at many points on its route, traverses the peninsula from Bombay to Calcutta in three days. 
This railway does not run in a direct line across India. The distance between Bombay and Calcutta, as the bird flies, is only from 1,000 to 1,100 miles. But the deflections of the road increase this distance by more than a third. The general route of the Great Indian Peninsula Railway is as follows. Leaving Bombay, it passes through Salset, crossing to the continent opposite Tanna, goes over the chain of the Western Ghats, runs thence northeast as far as Burhampur, skirts the nearly independent territory of Bundelkund, ascends to Allahabad, turns thence eastwardly, meeting the Ganges at Benares, then departs from the river a little, and descending southeastward by Burdivan and the French town of Chandernagore, has its terminus at Calcutta. The passengers of the Mongolia went ashore at half-past four p.m. At exactly eight, the train would start for Calcutta. Mr. Fogg, after bidding goodbye to his whist partners, left the steamer, gave his servant several errands to do, urged it upon him to be at the station promptly at eight, and with his regular step, which beat to the second, like an astronomical clock, directed his steps to the passport office. As for the wonders of Bombay, its famous city hall, its splendid library, its forts and docks, its bazaars, mosques, synagogues, its Armenian churches, and the noble pagoda on Malabar Hill, with its two polygonal towers. He cared not a straw to see them. He would not deign to examine even the masterpieces of Elephanta, or the mysterious Hypogea, concealed southeast from the docks, or those fine remains of Buddhist architecture, the Canarian grottoes of the island of Salset. Having transacted his business at the passport office, Phileas Fogg repaired quietly to the railway station, where he ordered dinner. Among the dishes served up to him, the landlord especially recommended a certain giblet of native rabbit, on which he prided himself. Mr. Fogg accordingly tasted the dish, but, despite its spiced sauce, found it far from palatable. He rang for the landlord, and on his appearance said, fixing his clear eyes upon him, "'Is this rabbit, sir?' "'Yes, my lord,' the rogue boldly replied. "'Rabbit from the jungles.' "'And this rabbit did not mew when he was killed?' Mew, my lord, what a rabbit mew, I swear to you. Be so good, landlord, as not to swear, but remember this. Cats were formerly considered in India as sacred animals. That was a good time. For the cats, my lord? Perhaps for the travellers as well. After which, Mr. Fogg quietly continued his dinner. Fix had gone on shore shortly after Mr. Fogg, and his first destination was the headquarters of the Bombay police. He made himself known as a London detective, told his business at Bombay, and the position of affairs relative to the supposed robber, and nervously asked if a warrant had arrived from London. It had not reached the office. Indeed, there had not yet been time for it to arrive. Fix was sorely disappointed and tried to obtain an order of arrest from the director of the Bombay police. 
This the director refused, as the matter concerned the London police, which alone could legally deliver the warrant. Fix did not insist, and was fain to resign himself to await the arrival of the important document. But he was determined not to lose sight of the mysterious rogue as long as he stayed in Bombay. He did not doubt for a moment, any more than Passepartout, that Phileas Fogg would remain there, at least until it was time for the warrant to arrive. Passepartout, however, had no sooner heard his master's orders on leaving the Mongolia than he saw at once that they were to leave Bombay as they had done Suez and Paris, and that the journey would be extended at least as far as Calcutta, and perhaps beyond that place. He began to ask himself if this bet that Mr. Fogg talked about was not really in good earnest, and whether his fate was not in truth forcing him despite his love of repose, around the world in 80 days. Having purchased the usual quota of shirts and shoes, he took a leisurely promenade around the streets, where crowds of people of many nationalities, Europeans, Persians with pointed caps, banyas with round turbans, Sindhis with square bonnets, Parsis with black mitres, and long-robed Armenians were collected. It happened to be the day of a Parsi festival. These descendants of the sect of Zoroaster, the most thrifty, civilized, intelligent, and austere of the East Indians, among whom are counted the rich native merchants of Bombay, were celebrating a sort of religious carnival, with processions and shows, in the midst of which Indian dancing girls, clothed in rose-colored gauze, looped up with gold and silver, danced airily, but with perfect modesty, to the sound of vials and the clanging of tambourines. It is needless to say that Passepartout watched these curious ceremonies with staring eyes and gaping mouth, and that his countenance was that of the greenest booby imaginable. Unhappily for his master, as well as himself, his curiosity drew him unconsciously farther off than he intended to go. At last, having seen the Parsi carnival wind away in the distance, he was turning his steps towards the station, when he happened to epsy the splendid pagoda on Malabar Hill, and was seized with an irresistible desire to see its interior. He was quite ignorant that it is forbidden to Christians to enter certain Indian temples, and that even the faithful must not go in without first leaving their shoes outside the door. It may be said here that the wise policy of the British government severely punishes a disregard of the practices of the native religions. Passepartout, however, thinking no harm, went in like a simple tourist, and was soon lost in admiration of the splendid Brahmin ornamentation which everywhere met his eyes, when of a sudden he found himself sprawling on the sacred flagging. He looked up to behold three enraged priests, who forthwith fell upon him, tore off his shoes, and began to beat him with loud, savage exclamations. The agile Frenchman was soon upon his feet again, and lost no time in knocking down two of his long-gowned adversaries, with his fits and a vigorous application of his toes. Then, rushing out of the pagoda as fast as his legs could carry him, he soon escaped the third priest by mingling with the crowd in the streets. At five minutes before eight, Passepartout, 
hatless, shoeless, and having in the squabble lost his package of shirts and shoes, rushed breathlessly into the station. Fix, who had followed Mr. Fogg to the station and saw that he was really going to leave Bombay, was there, upon the platform. He had resolved to follow the supposed robber to Calcutta, and further if necessary. Passepartout did not observe the detective, who stood in an obscure corner, but Fix heard him relate his adventures in a few words to Mr. Fogg. "'I hope that this will not happen again,' said Phileas Fogg coldly, as he got into the train. Poor Passepartout, quite crestfallen, followed his master without a word. Fix was on the point of entering another carriage, when an idea struck him, which induced him to alter his plan. "'No, I'll stay,' muttered he. "'An offence has been committed on Indian soil. I've got my man.' Just then, the locomotive gave a sharp screech, and the train passed out into the darkness of the night." Chapter 11, in which Phileas Fogg secures a curious means of conveyance at a fabulous price. The train had started punctually. Among the passengers were a number of officers, government officials, and opium and indigo merchants, whose business called them to the eastern coast. Passepartout rode in the same carriage with his master, and a third passenger occupied a seat opposite to them. This was Sir Francis Cromarty, one of Mr. Fogg's whist partners on the Mongolia, now on his way to join his corps at Benares. Sir Francis was a tall, fair man of fifty, who had greatly distinguished himself in the last Sepoy revolt. He made India his home, only paying brief visits to England at rare intervals, and was almost as familiar as a native with the customs, history, and character of India and its people. But Phileas Fogg, who was not travelling, but only describing a circumference, took no pains to inquire into these subjects. He was a solid body, traversing an orbit around the terrestrial globe, according to the laws of rational mechanics. He was, at this moment, calculating in his mind the number of hours spent since his departure from London, and, had it been in his nature to make a useless demonstration, would have rubbed his hands for satisfaction. Sir Francis Cromarty had observed the oddity of his travelling companion, although the only opportunity he had for studying him had been while he was dealing the cards, and between two rubbers and questioned himself whether a human heart really beat beneath this cold exterior, and whether Phileas Fogg had any sense of the beauties of nature. The Brigadier General was free to mentally confess that, of all the eccentric persons he had ever met, none was comparable to this product of the exact sciences. Phileas Fogg had not concealed from Sir Francis his design of going round the world, nor the circumstances under which he set out. And the general only saw in the wager a useless eccentricity and a lack of sound common sense. In the way this strange gentleman was going on, he would leave the world without having done any good to himself or anybody else. An hour after leaving Bombay, the train had passed the viaducts and the island of Salcite, and had got into the open country. 
at Kalyan, they reach the junction of the branch line which descends towards southeastern India by Kandala and Pune, and passing Powell, they entered the defiles of the mountains, with their basalt bases and their summits crowned with thick and verdant forests. Phileas Fogg and Sir Francis Cromarty exchanged a few words from time to time. And now, Sir Francis, reviving the conversation, observed, "'Some years ago, Mr. Fogg, you would have met with a delay at this point which would probably have lost you your wager.' "'How so, Sir Francis?' "'Because the railway stopped at the base of these mountains, which the passengers were obliged to cross in palanquins or on ponies to Kandala on the other side.' "'Such a delay would not have deranged my plans in the least,' said Mr. Fogg. I have constantly foreseen the likelihood of certain obstacles. But, Mr. Fogg, pursued Sir Francis, you run the risk of having some difficulty about this worthy fellow's adventure at the pagoda. Passepartout, his feet comfortably wrapped in his travelling blanket, was sound asleep and did not dream that anybody was talking about him. The government is very severe upon that kind of offence. It takes particular care that the religious customs of the Indians should be respected, and if your servant were caught... Very well, Sir Francis, replied Mr. Fogg. If he had been caught, he would have been condemned and punished, and then would have quietly returned to Europe. I don't see how this affair could have delayed his master. The conversation fell again. During the night, the train left the mountains behind, and passed Nasik and the next day proceeded over the flat, well-cultivated country of the Kandesh, with its straggling villages above which rose the minarets of the pagodas. This fertile territory is watered by numerous small rivers and limpid streams, mostly tributaries of the Godavari. Passepartout, on waking and looking out, could not realize that he was actually crossing India in a railway train. The locomotive, guided by an English engineer and fed with English coal, threw out its smoke upon cotton, coffee, nutmeg, clove, and pepper plantations, while the steam curled in spirals around groups of palm trees, in the midst of which were seen picturesque bungalows, viharis, sort of abandoned monasteries, and marvellous temples enriched by the exhaustless ornamentation of Indian architecture. Then they came upon vast tracts extending to the horizon, with jungles inhabited by snakes and tigers, which fled at the noise of the train. Succeeded by forests penetrated by the railway, and still haunted by elephants, which, with pensive eyes, gazed at the train as it passed. The travellers crossed, beyond Milligam, the fatal country so often stained with blood by the sectaries of the goddess Kali. Not far off rose Elora, with its graceful pagodas and the, and the famous Arungabad capital of the ferocious Arungzeb, now the chief town of one of the detached provinces of the kingdom of the Nizam. It was thereabout that Ferengea, the Togi chief, king of the Stranglers, held his sway. These ruffians, united by a secret bond, strangled victims of every age in honor of the goddess Death, without ever shedding blood. 
There was a period when this part of the country could scarcely be traveled over without corpses being found in every direction. The English government has succeeded in greatly diminishing these murders, though the, the Thuggees still exist and pursue the exercise of their horrible rights. At half past twelve, the train stopped at Burampur, where Passepartout was able to purchase some Indian slippers, ornamented with false pearls, in which, with evident vanity, he proceeded to encase his feet. The travellers made a hasty breakfast and started off for Asugur. After skirting for a little the banks of the small river Tapti, which empties into the Gulf of Cambrai near Surat, Passepartout was now plunged into absorbing reverie. Up to his arrival at Bombay, he had entertained hopes that their journey would end there. But now that they were plainly whirling across India at full speed, a sudden change had come over the spirit of his dreams. His old vagabond nature returned to him. The fantastic ideas of his youth once more took possession of him. He came to regard his master's project as intended in good earnest, believed in the reality of the bet, and therefore in the tour of the world and the necessity of making it without fail within the designated period. Already, he began to worry about possible delays and accidents which might happen on the way. He recognized himself as being personally interested in the wager, and trembled at the thought that he might have been the means of losing it by his unpardonable folly of the night before. Being much less cool-headed than Mr. Fogg, he was much more restless, counting and recounting the days passed over, uttering maledictions when the train stopped, and accusing it of sluggishness, and mentally blaming Mr. Fogg for not having bribed the engineer. The worthy fellow was ignorant that, while it was possible by such means to hasten the rate of a steamer, it could not be done on the railway. The train entered the defiles of the Satpur Mountains, which separate the Kandesh from the Bundelkhand, towards evening. The next day, Sir Francis Cromarty asked Passepartout what time it was, to which, on consulting his watch, he replied that it was three in the morning. This famous timepiece, always regulated on the Greenwich Meridian, which was now some 77 degrees westward, was at least four hours slow. Sir Francis corrected Passepartout's time, whereupon the latter made the same remark that he had done to fix. And upon the general insisting that the watch should be regulated in each new meridian, since he was constantly going eastward, that is, in the face of the sun, and therefore the days were shorter by four minutes for each degree gone over. Passepartout obstinately refused to alter his watch, which he kept at London time. It was an innocent delusion which could harm no one. The train stopped at eight o'clock in the midst of a glade of some fifteen miles beyond Rothal, where there were several bungalows and workmen's cabins. The conductor passed along the carriages, shouted, "'Passengers will get out here!' Phileas Fogg looked at Sir Francis Cromarty for an explanation, but the general could not tell what meant a halt in the midst of this forest of dates and acacias. Passepartout, not less surprised, rushed out and speedily returned, crying, Monsieur, no more railway! What do you mean? asked Sir Francis. I mean to say that the train isn't going on. 
The general at once stepped out, while Phileas Fogg calmly followed him, and they proceeded together to the conductor. "'Where are we?' asked Sir Francis. "'At the hamlet of Colby.' "'Do we stop here?' "'Certainly. The railway isn't finished.' "'What? Not finished?' No, there's still a matter of fifty miles to be laid from here to Allahabad, where the line begins again. But the papers announce the opening of the railway throughout. What would you have, officer? The papers were mistaken. Yet you sell tickets from Bombay to Calcutta, retorted Sir Francis, who was growing warm. No doubt, replied the conductor, but the passengers know that they must provide means of transportation for themselves from Colby to Allahabad. Sir Francis was furious. Passepartout would willingly have knocked the conductor down and did not dare to look at his master. Sir Francis, said Mr. Fogg quietly, we will, if you please, look about for some means of conveyance to Allahabad. Mr. Fogg, this is a delay greatly to your disadvantage. No, Sir Francis, it was foreseen. What? You knew that the way... Not at all. But I knew that some obstacle or other would sooner or later arise on my route. Nothing, therefore, is lost. I have two days, which I have already gained, to sacrifice. A steamer leaves Calcutta for Hong Kong at noon on the 25th. This is the 22nd, and we shall reach Calcutta in time. There was nothing to say to so confident a response. It was but too true that the railway came to a termination at this point. The papers were like some watches, which have a way of getting too fast, and had been premature in their announcement of the completion of the line. The greater part of the travellers were aware of this interruption, and, leaving the train, they began to engage such vehicles as the village could provide. Four-wheeled palkigaris, wagons drawn by zebus, carriages that looked like preambulating pagodas, palanquins, ponies, and what not. Mr. Frog and Sir Francis Cromarty, after searching the village from end to end, came back without having found anything. "'I shall go afoot,' said Phileas Fogg. Passepartout, who had now rejoined his master, made a wry grimace as he thought of his magnificent but too frail Indian shoes. Happily, he too had been looking about him, and after a moment's hesitation said, Monsieur, I think I have found a means of conveyance. What? An elephant. An elephant that belongs to an Indian who lives but a hundred steps from here. Let's go and see the elephant, replied Mr. Fogg. They soon reached a small hut, near which, enclosed within some high pollings, was the animal in question. An Indian came out of the hut, and at their request, conducted them within the enclosure. The elephant, which its owner had reared, not for a beast of burden, but for warlike purposes, was half domesticated. The Indian had begun already by often irritating him, and feeding him every three months on sugar and butter, to impart to him a ferocity not in his nature. This method being often employed by those who trained the Indian elephants for battle. 
Happily, however, for Mr. Fogg, the animal's instruction in this direction had not gone far, and the elephant still preserved his natural gentleness. Kiuni, this was the name of the beast, could doubtless travel rapidly for a long time, and, in default of any other means of conveyance, Mr. Fogg resolved to hire him. But elephants are far from cheap in India, where they are becoming scarce. The males, which alone are suitable for circus shows, are much sought, especially as but few of them are domesticated. When, therefore, Mr. Fogg proposed to the Indian to hire Cuny, he refused point-blank. Mr. Fogg persisted, offering the excessive sum of ten pounds an hour for the loan of the beast to Allahabad. Refused. Twenty pounds? Refused also. Forty pounds? Still refused. Passepartout jumped at each advance, but the Indian declined to be tempted. Yet the offer was an alluring one, for supposing it took the elephant fifteen hours to reach Allahabad, his owner would receive no less than six hundred pounds sterling. Phileas Fogg, without getting in the least flurried, then proposed to purchase the animal outright, and at first offered a thousand pounds for him. The Indian, perhaps thinking he was going to make a great bargain, still refused. Sir Francis Cromarty took Mr. Fogg aside and begged him to reflect before he went any further, to which that gentleman replied that he was not in the habit of acting rashly, that a bet of twenty thousand pounds was at stake, that the elephant was absolutely necessary to him, and that he would secure him if he had to pay twenty times his value. Returning to the Indian, whose small, sharp eyes, glistening with avarice, betrayed that with him it was only a question of how great a price he could obtain. Mr. Fogg offered first twelve hundred, then fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred, two thousand pounds. Passepartout, usually so rubicund, was fairly white with suspense. At two thousand pounds the Indian yielded. "'What a price, good heavens!' cried Passepartout. "'For an elephant!' It only remained now to find a guide, which was comparatively easy. A young Parsi with an intelligent face offered his services, which Mr. Fogg accepted, promising so generous a reward as to materially stimulate his zeal. The elephant was led out and equipped. The Parsi, who was an accomplished elephant driver, covered his back with a sort of saddlecloth and attached to each of his flanks some curiously double howdahs. Phileas Fogg paid the Indian with some banknotes, which he extracted from the famous carpet bag, a proceeding that seemed to deprive poor Passepartout of his vitals. Then he offered to carry Sir Francis to Allahabad which the brigadier gratefully accepted, as one traveller, the more would not be likely to fatigue the giant beast. Provisions were purchased at Colby, and while Sir Francis and Mr. Fogg took the howdahs on either side, Passepartout got astride the saddlecloth between them. The Parsi perched himself on the elephant's neck, and at nine o'clock they set out from the village, the animal marching off through the dense forest of palms by the shortest cut. Chapter 12. In which Phileas Fogg and his companions venture across the Indian forests and what ensued.
In order to shorten the journey, the guide passed to the left of the line where the railway was still in process of being built. This line, owing to the capricious turnings of the Vindia Mountains, did not pursue a straight course. The Parsi, who was quite familiar with the roads and paths in the district, declared that they would gain twenty miles by striking directly through the forest. Phileas Fogg and Sir Francis Cromarty, plunged to the neck in the peculiar howdahs provided for them, were horribly jostled by the swift trotting of the elephant, spurred on as he was by the skilful Parsi. But they endured the discomfort with true British phlegm, talking little and scarcely able to catch a glimpse of each other. As for Passepartout, who was mounted on the beast's back, and received the direct force of each concussion as he trod along, he was very careful, in accordance with his master's advice, to keep his tongue from between his teeth, as it would otherwise have been bitten off short. The worthy fellow bounced from the elephant's neck to his rump, and vaulted like a clown on a springboard. Yet he laughed in the midst of his bouncing and from time to time took a piece of sugar out of his pocket and inserted it in Keuni's trunk, who received it without in the least slackening his regular trot. After two hours, the guide stopped the elephant and gave him an hour for rest, during which Keuni, after quenching his thirst at a neighboring spring, set to devouring the branches and shrubs round about him. Neither Sir Francis nor Mr. Fogg regretted the delay, and both descended with a feeling of relief. "'Why, he's made of iron!' exclaimed the general, gazing admiringly on Cuny. "'Of forged iron,' replied Passepartout, as he set about preparing a hasty breakfast. At noon the Parsi gave the signal of departure. The country soon presented a very savage aspect— Copses of dates and dwarf palms succeeded the dense forests, then vast dry plains dotted with scanty shrubs and sown with great blocks of cyanite. All this portion of Bundelkund, which is little frequented by travellers, is inhabited by a fanatical population, hardened in the most horrible practices of the Hindu faith. The English have not been able to secure complete dominion over this territory, which is subjected to the influence of rajas, whom it is impossible to reach in their inaccessible mountain fastnesses. The travellers, several times, saw bands of ferocious Indians who, when they perceived the elephant striding across country, made angry and threatening motions. The Parsi avoided them as much as possible. Few animals were observed on the route. Even the monkeys hurried from their path with contortions and grimaces, which convulsed Passepartout with laughter. In the midst of his gaiety, however, one thought troubled the worthy servant. What would Mr. Fogg do with the elephant when he got to Allahabad? Would he carry him on with him? Impossible. The cost of transporting him would make him ruinously expensive. Would he sell him or set him free? The estimable beast certainly deserved some consideration. Should Mr. Fogg choose to make him, Passepartout, a present uni, he would be very much embarrassed and these thoughts did not cease worrying him for a long time. The principal chain of the Vindias was crossed by eight in the evening, and another halt was made on the northern slope in a ruined bungalow. They had gone nearly twenty-five miles that day, and an equal distance still separated from the station of Allahabad. 
The night was cold. The Parsi lit a fire in the bungalow with a few dry branches, and the warmth was very grateful. Provisions purchased at Colby sufficed for supper, and the travellers ate ravenously. The conversation, beginning with a few disconnected phrases, soon gave place to loud and steady snores. The guide watched Kiuni, who slept standing, bolstering himself against the trunk of a large tree. Nothing occurred during the night to disturb the slumberers, although occasional growls from panthers and chatterings of monkeys broke the silence. The more formidable beasts made no cries or hostile demonstration against the occupants of the bungalow. Sir Francis slept heavily, like an honest soldier overcome with fatigue. Passepartout was wrapped in uneasy dreams of the bouncing of the day before. As for Mr. Fogg, he slumbered as peacefully as if he had been in his serene mansion in Seville Row. The journey was resumed at six in the morning. The guide hoped to reach Allahabad by evening. In that case, Mr. Fogg would only lose a part of the 48 hours saved since the beginning of the tour. Kiuni, resuming his rapid gait, soon descended the lower spurs of the Vindias, and towards noon they passed by the village of Kalengar, on the Kani, one of the branches of the Ganges. The guide avoided inhabited places, thinking it safer to keep the open country, which lies along the first depressions of the basin of the Great River. Allahabad was now only twelve miles to the northeast. They stopped under a clump of bananas. The fruit of which, as healthy as bread and as succulent as cream, was amply partaken of and appreciated. At two o'clock, the guide entered a thick forest which extended several miles. He preferred to travel under cover of the woods. They had not as yet had any unpleasant encounters, and the journey seemed on the point of being successfully accomplished, when the elephant, becoming restless, suddenly stopped. It was then four o'clock. "'What's the matter?' asked Sir Francis, putting out his head. "'I don't know, officer,' replied the Parsi, listening attentively to a confused murmur which came through the thick branches." The murmur soon became more distinct. It now seemed like a distant concert of human voices, accompanied by brass instruments. Passepartout was all eyes and ears. Mr. Fogg patiently waited without a word. The Parsi jumped to the ground, fastened the elephant to a tree, and plunged into the thicket. He soon returned, saying... A procession of Brahmins is coming this way. We must prevent their seeing us, if possible. The guide unloosed the elephant and led him into a thicket, at the same time asking the travellers not to stir. He held himself ready to bestride the animal at a moment's notice, should flight become necessary. But he evidently thought that the procession of the faithful would pass without perceiving them amid the thick foliage in which they were wholly concealed. The discordant tones of the voices and instruments drew nearer, and now droning songs mingled with the sound of the tambourines and cymbals. The head of the procession soon appeared beneath the trees, a hundred paces away, 
and the strange figures who performed the religious ceremony were easily distinguished through the branches. First came the priests, with mitres on their heads and clothed in long lace robes. They were surrounded by men, women, and children, who sang a kind of lugubrious psalm, interrupted at regular intervals by the tambourines and cymbals. While behind them was drawn a car with large wheels, the spokes of which represented serpents entwined with each other. Upon the car, which was drawn by four richly caparisoned zebus, stood a hideous statue with four arms, the body colored a dull red, with haggard eyes, disheveled hair, protruding tongue, and lips tinted with patel. It stood upright on the figure of a prostrate and headless giant. Sir Francis, recognizing the statue, whispered, The goddess Kali, the goddess of love and death. Of death, perhaps, muttered back Passepartout, but of love, that ugly old hag, never. The Parsi made a motion to keep silence. A group of old fakirs were capering and making a wild ado around the statue. These were striped with ochre and covered with cuts once their blood issued drop by drop. Stupid fanatics, who in the great Indian ceremonies still throw themselves under the wheels of juggernaut. Some Brahmins, clad in the sumptuousness of oriental apparel and leading a woman who faltered at every step, followed. This woman was young and as fair as a European. Her head and neck, shoulders, ears, arms, hands, and toes were loaded down with jewels and gems, with bracelets, earrings, and rings, while a tunic bordered with gold and covered with a light muslin robe betrayed the outline of her form. The guards who followed the young woman presented a violent contrast to her. Armed as they were with naked sabres hung at their waists, and long damascended pistols, and bearing a corpse on a palanquin. It was the body of an old man, gorgeously arrayed with the habiliments of a raja, wearing, as in life, a turban embroidered with pearls, a robe of tissue, of silk and gold, a scarf of cashmere sewed with diamonds, and the magnificent weapons of a Hindu prince. Next came the musicians and a rear guard of capering fakirs, whose cries sometimes drowned the noise of the instruments. These closed the procession. Sir Francis watched the procession with a sad countenance, and turning to the guide said, A settee. The Parsi nodded and put his finger to his lips. The procession slowly wound under the trees, and soon its last ranks disappeared in the depths of the wood. The songs gradually died away, occasionally cries were heard in the distance, until at last all was silent again. Phileas Fogg had heard what Sir Francis said, and as soon as the procession had disappeared, asked, What is a settee? A settee, returned the general, is a human sacrifice, but a voluntary one. The woman you have just seen will be burned tomorrow at the dawn of day. Oh, the scoundrels, cried Passepartout, who could not repress his indignation. And the corpse, 
asked Mr. Fogg. "'Is that of the prince, her husband,' said the guide, "'an independent Raja of Bundelkund. "'Is it possible,' resumed Phileas Fogg, "'his voice betraying not the least emotion, "'that these barbarous customs still exist in India, "'and that the English have been unable to put a stop to them? "'These sacrifices do not occur in the larger portion of India.' replied Sir Francis. But we have no power over these savage territories, and especially here in Bundelkund. The whole district north of the Vindias is the theatre of incessant murders and pillage. The poor wretch, exclaimed Passepartout, to be burned alive. Yes, returned Sir Francis, burned alive, and if she were not, you cannot conceive what treatment she would be obliged to submit to from her relatives. They would shave off her hair, feed her on a scanty allowance of rice, treat her with contempt. She would be looked upon as an unclean creature, and would die in some corner like a scurvy dog. The prospect of so frightful an existence drives these poor creatures to the sacrifice much more than love or religious fanaticism. Sometimes, however, the sacrifice is really voluntary, and it requires the active interference of the government to prevent it. Several years ago, when I was living at Bombay, a young widow asked permission of the governor to be burned along with her husband's body. But, as you may imagine, he refused. The woman left the town, took refuge with an independent Raja, and there carried out her self-devoted purpose. While Sir Francis was speaking, the guide shook his head several times, and now said, the sacrifice which will take place tomorrow at dawn is not a voluntary one. How do you know? Everybody knows about this affair in Bundelkund. But the wretched creature did not seem to be making any resistance, observed Sir Francis. That was because they had intoxicated her with fumes of hemp and opium. But where are they taking her? To the pagoda of Pelagi, two miles from here. She will pass the night there. And the sacrifice will take place tomorrow, at the first light of dawn. The guide now led the elephant out of the thicket and leaped upon his neck. Just at the moment that he was about to urge Keuni forward with a peculiar whistle, Mr. Fogg stopped him and, turning to Sir Francis Cromarty, said, Suppose we save this woman. Save the woman, Mr. Fogg. I have yet twelve hours to spare. I can devote them to that. Why, you are a man of heart. Sometimes, replied Phileas Fogg quietly, when I have the time. Thank you for indulging in a story with me today. If you enjoyed it, please consider following and rating the podcast. It helps other people find and enjoy the show, too. If you want to get in touch with me, there's an email in the show notes. I'd love to hear from you. Our show music was composed by my dear friend Rachel Robinson, played by the wonderful Andreas Gateman, and audio engineered by the talented Devin Lamont from the band Crash Kick. Our episode album art was drawn by the exquisite Georgia McInnes. We'll be back next week with the next piece of this wonderful story. Till next time, friends. <laughs>